Okay, welcome to part four of our survey of the 12 minor prophets. And again, as I pointed out two weeks ago when we began the study of Amos, all of the minor prophets seem to have a very similar pattern. One, there is the sin of the people. Two, God raises up a prophet. Three, the prophet gives a dire warning to the people from God. Four, knowing the stiff-necked nature of the people and they will not heed the warning, God then provides the judgment and consequences through the prophet. And then five, God reveals that a remnant of his people will be saved. Now, the book of Obadiah is similar. However, this prophecy is not given to the people of Israel or to Judah, but to a different people group altogether. They are related, but they're not the same. This book involves the consequences of a struggle between God's chosen people and another people that began in the womb approximately 1,157 years prior to this prophet speaking. And we're going to look at the context of this because context isn't essential in truly understanding the patterns and, and the things that God is teaching. So I want to ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to, we're going to tease out some of the context of this so that we'll have a better understanding of what's going on. So in Genesis 25, verse 21 through 26, we see the story of Esau and Jacob, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, beginning in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, to summarize the rest of the story, Esau was the oldest. He, tr he first traded his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of red stew, and thus we get the name Edom. Secondly, as the firstborn, he was supposed to receive his father's blessing but Jacob tricked their father Isaac, and Jacob received the blessing instead of Esau. And this was about 1928 B.C. God's prophecy to Rebekah of having two nations in her womb comes to pass then, because Jacob is the father of the Israelites, and Esau is the father of the Edomites. These two people groups clashed hundreds of years later, somewhere around 1440 B.C., during the exodus from Egypt. The Israelite people needed to pass through the Edomites' territory, and Moses sent word to the king of Edom seeking permission in Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21. It says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. 
And when we cried to the Lord, we heard, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Now it seems, at, at least initially, that it's kind of hard-hearted to turn a people away when they're just traveling through. But we also have to consider just the logistics of this people. By this time, it's estimated there, that there were about 2 million people in this Israelite band. This wasn't just a small group of people traveling. It would have taken days I don't know how many days, but it would have taken days for two million people to, to pass a certain spot. So the Edomites were concerned about, I guess, the impact, I'm sure the impact, the economical impact of two million people coming through. If they drank from a well, the well would be dry. If they ate from a vineyard, the vineyard would be, would be bare. And so he didn't want them coming through. So the Edomites and the Israelites are related they're from twin brothers, and they've had problems before the time, long before the time of Obadiah's prophecy. Now let's look at the time of Obadiah. Many scholars believe that the prophecy of Obadiah took place sometime during Jehoram's reign, around 848 to 841 BC, which would make Obadiah then the first prophet that God used to speak to a people. Again, they think it's about 840 BC. <clears throat> there is truly no exact time specified in the book. There is no king named. <clears throat> the only clues that scholars can use to point to, it, it's only through clues that scholars can use to point through in a time, to the time period, and that's in verses 10 through 14. That gives the only historical clues that can be used to determine the time frame that this, this writing took place. So during the reign of Jehoram, the Philistines and the Arabians invaded Judah and they looted Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles 21 verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that no son was left him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. Edom had been under the rule of Israel for some time, but they revolted during Jehoram's reign and became a bitter antagonist against Israel. Again in 2 Chronicles 21 verse 8, In his days Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. So that, that provides a little bit of the context and where we are with this people of Edom that God is speaking to through Obadiah. 
Now, the book of Obadiah can be sectioned out in two major sections. Verses 1 through 18 is the judgment of Edom. And verses 19 through 21 talks about the restoration of Israel. Now, we're going to read this very short book. In fact, it's the shortest of the minor prophets, the shortest book in the Old Testament. And it's in, we're going to look in four sections tonight. The first section is the predictions of judgment, verses 1 through 9. The second section will be the reasons for judgment, verses 10 through 14. The third section will be re, the results of the judgment, verses 15 through 18. And then the fourth section is the possession of Edom by Israel, and this is literally God's promise of restoring his people. And that's verses 19 through 21. Now, as we read these verses on the judgment of Edom, we will see that this is the strongest message from judgment or of judgment from God toward a people in the Old Testament. As we read this and see the, the results of what God's judgment is going to be, you see that the, the Edomites are hearing that there is no place to hide. There's no place to run. There's no way to turn back. There is no repentance option offered. Their fate is sealed. No amount of turning back will relieve them from God's designed outcome. And you'll see that God's outcome is the total destruction of the Edomite people. No remnant. Now you may ask the question, and this question has been asked a lot, is this fair? How could a loving God wipe out an entire people group? Well, to answer that, we're going to have to look to see what God's word says to the Edomite people. So the predictions of judgment found in Obadiah 1 through 9. Beginning, beginning in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. See, the Edomites lived in a land south of Judah, <clears throat> south of Jerusalem, in a mountainous region that was well fortified and it was deemed solid against any opposing forces coming against them. However, God makes it quite clear, there is no security in earthly dwellings. There is no security in anything against a white-hot holy God. Now, The second segment we're going to look at tonight is verses 10 through 14. And looking at the reasons for judgment. Beginning in verse 10. 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You see, Edom not only refused to allow the Israelites to cross their land on their way to Canaan during the exodus from Egypt, they also stood by aloof and they applauded and they stood by idly while conquerors overthrew and pillaged Jerusalem. If we look at verses 10 through 14, when, uh, particularly beginning in verse 12, when he says, do not gloat, he's not saying things about what's going to happen in the future. These are things that they already did. They're already guilty of. They gloated over the day of their brother in the day of his misfortune. They rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. They boasted in the day of their distress. They entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. They gloated over his disaster in the day of his calamity. They looted his wealth in the day of his calamity. They stood at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives, and they handed over the survivors in the day of distress. So this is not just telling them, don't ever do this. God is saying, you did this. You should not have done this. So the reasons for judgment is clear by their actions. The results of the judgment. In verses 15 through 18. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done... It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And here he's referring to what he just talked about in verses 10 through 14. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. They shall be as though and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. See, the results of the judgment on the people of Edom will be as if the house of Jacob was a roaring, relentless fire, a prairie fire, for example, driven by a high wind. And Edom will be like the stubble in front of the fire. See, a prayer fire moves quickly, and the stubble cannot do anything to protect itself. <clears throat> fire always prevails against stubble. The picture is bleak, and the picture is absolute. I grew up in, in a small town in West Texas, Fort Stockton, and there was a volunteer fire department there that my dad was a part of. And out in the desert, you don't think about things being there to burn, but the Chihuahuan Desert has quite a bit of grass and mesquite trees and sagebrush, and it's dry most of the time, and prairie fires start pretty quickly. Um, and 
I helped fight a number of grass fires out in, out in West Texas. One particular fire, I remember, was north of town about five miles, and um, the, the grass had caught on fire. There was a real strong south wind. The fire was moving toward Odessa pretty quickly. Uh, it was 100 miles away, but it could have gotten there pretty quickly if, if the fire department had not been able to get this fire out. And one of the things that they did, they set a, they set a back burn, uh, a, a burn barricade, basically. They, they set some, a fire, just a small stretch of, of land in front of the fire. They, they set another fire and then put it out quickly so that there was a burned spot, and hopefully the, the fire then wouldn't jump that. But in the process of doing that, um, one of the volunteer firemen was driving the, it was a, as I recall, a brand new truck. And he wasn't really paying attention. He was watching the fire coming toward him. Uh, they had wet all the ground down where they had burned off the, the, the barrier. Um, and when he was driving, he went through um, just a little, a little gully. Um, and the back bumper and the front bumper were on the ground. The wheels were off the ground. So the fire truck was, was completely stuck. There was no way to get it off. And the fire truck burned to the ground. I mean, there wasn't anything left of it. Um, there wasn't anything that the grass, there wasn't anything that the fire truck could do in and of itself to stop the fire. The relentless roaring fire came in and destroyed everything. And that's the picture that God paints of saying that the house of Judah will be like a roaring fire, a raging fire, and the house of Edom will be like the stubble. And they would be completely cut off. The fourth, fourth section we're going to look at tonight is the possession of Edom by Israel. <clears throat> this is the restoration of God's people, the promise of, of restoration. In verses 19 through 21, it says, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Seraphod, Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. <clears throat> now these last three verses offer the hope from God that the chosen people of God will once again take possession of their own land. In addition to that, they will also possess the lands belonging to Edom and to Philistia. Again, I ask this question, is this fair? The question has been asked before, how can a loving God do such a thing to an entire people group? There can be lots of discussion, there can be lots of answers that we could throw around, but the bottom line answer to that is because He is God. And the Edomite people are suffering the consequences, first of all, of original sin. Because Adam and Eve sinned, they lived in a fallen world just as we live in a fallen world. And bad things happen. But they're also suffering under the consequences of their own sin against their brother, Esau against Jacob, the Edomites against the Israelites. And God has been in the business of choosing since the beginning of time. See, there wasn't anything particularly holy about Jacob. In fact, as we've, as we've looked at the story before, 
Jacob was a deceiver. He, he, was, he was somewhat of an opportunist. But God chose Jacob, and he chooses, God has done it over and over and over again. He chooses the, sometimes the weakest or the worst to confound the wise. And God's design always comes out the way God intends it to. See, the problem that we run into is we tend to forget that God is truly God and we try to impose our morals and our beliefs about what is right and wrong upon a holy God. We try to put God inside this little cubicle of our morals and our deciding what's right and wrong and we try to make God fit that pattern or that little cubicle. And it doesn't work. Our morals... Our standard of right and wrong always come up short because our morals as human beings and our decisions of what's right and wrong change from day to day. God does not change at all. In Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God says of this very situation, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We see the next chapter of the Edomites in the 5th century B.C. The Edomites are forced from their territory by the Nebataeans, and they move to an area of Palestine known as the Endemian country where the Endemians lived. Herod the Great was an Endemian. He became the king of Judah under Roman law in 37 BC. And this is something as I was, as I was reading through and studying for this, um, for this tonight, I saw this and I was just wowed. I had never seen this before. I had never connected these dots before. And God connects them very clearly. So Herod the Great, think about this, Herod the Great appointed the king by the Roman government in 37 B.C. And in a very real sense, the struggle between Esau and Jacob continued to the point of time that King Herod the Great tried to murder Jesus as an infant. And all all the baby boys in Bethlehem were killed as a result of his decree. So that struggle between Esau and Jacob continued through Herod the Great, an Endemian, an Edomite. Now there was a change then. In 70 AD, Judea revolted against Rome and the Endemians joined Judea in that revolt. However, they were defeated by the Jews, or they were defeated with the Jews by Titus. And it, uh, it just seems strange that on two occasions, the Edomites, first of all, refused to help the descendants of Jacob on their journey to Canaan. And then secondly, they rejoiced over Jerusalem being plundered. And yet at 70 AD, they stood, along to, they stood alongside Judea and they all died. After that defeat in 70 AD, 
there was nothing ever heard of the Endemians again. They were totally wiped out. So, verse 18 is true. Where God says through Obadiah, there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. It was completed. The prophecy was completed in 70 AD. Now finally tonight, I want to look at at least three references in Obadiah to Jesus. We always need to see where Christ is, is revealed in, in Scripture in the Old Testament. First of all, we see that Jesus is the judge of the nations in verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord, talking about Jesus, is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and it will be as though they had never been. The second reference that we see Christ in is in verses 17 through 20. And we see Jesus as the Savior of Israel. Beginning in verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. The Lord, that is Jesus. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in the Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. So we see that Jesus, again, is the Savior of Israel, bringing them back. And then in verse 21, we see that Jesus is the possessor of the kingdom. In Obadiah 21, it says, Saviors will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It belongs to Jesus. So even though the prophecy is against the Edomite people, God still gives a message of the restoration of the remnant of his chosen people, the descendants of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Sometimes the studies that we look at and the minor prophets, prophecies are always seemingly, and, and they are, and they could be described as a gloom and doom scenario. And this is not one of those ultimately feel-good studies. But the reality is God is God. And what God says will always happen. And God restored his people. His kingdom will always be exactly what God intended it to be. The outcome will always be what God has designed from the beginning. So we see that here in Obadiah. Even though there was a people who, who were absolutely decimated and destroyed, that is part of God's design. And again, we talked about God being a God who chooses and he has chosen. The victory that we have is that he's chosen us. So with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for revealing your word to us. We thank you that we can see, even in a difficult situation of the Edomite people, 
and that by your design, there was no remnant left of them. Father, we could focus on that and grumble. What we need to do is focus on the fact that you have chosen a remnant. Not from among the Jews only, but among the Gentiles. That, Father, we have an assurance that you are in the business of choosing and you have chosen us as a people to be adopted into the family of Abraham. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus to glorify you, we have a renewed relationship with the Father through Jesus. And we thank you for that. Father, I thank you for a fellowship like Cross Point that we can study your word unashamedly, boldly pronounce and proclaim the truth of your word. And I thank you that that happens week in and week out, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, in our life groups. Father, the word can be and is checked and spoken clearly. It's my prayer. Father, I pray that what's been said tonight will glorify and honor you. And Father, may we give you praise for who you are as well as for what you do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.